turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. I was talking with some folks yesterday, and one of the men that I was talking with, he's 83 years old, I believe, and uh, he's talking about retired people. And uh, the fact that sometimes when you retire from a vocation, uh, you figure, well, okay, I can take it easy now. And uh, he brought up Abraham and Isaac. They're mentioned here in Hebrews chapter 11. And he said, what if Abraham and Isaac had retired at age 75? That's an interesting thought. Isaac wasn't born for 25 years. 25 years later. So if they had retired from God's service, woo, would have been bad. Yeah. And uh, mentioned several other things along those lines, and we'll, we'll deal with that in the days ahead. But uh, uh, we want to start in verse 32 this, uh, this evening. Verse 32. We're not going to make it through the end of the chapter, I'm afraid, but we're going to try. We'll see what happens. Okay. Uh, Verse 32 of Hebrews chapter 11, And what shall I more say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, and of Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, and of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, and women received their dead raised to life again. We'll pause there in our reading because we want to look at these things and talk about them just for a moment. He mentions Gideon and his 300 men. Uh, One of the neatest times we ever had in Israel was when we stopped outside the little village of Gedonia, which is female, but if you're going to name a village after a hero, you give the village the feminine and because the male, he's the hero. And uh, I don't know why. It's just the way they do it. And so this little village of Gedonia, the village of Gideon, outside of it is a stream of water. And that stream of water is where Gideon took his 300 men, uh, actually not his 300 men, his 10,000 men, He gathered 32,000. They all showed up, and God said, that's way too many. Tell those that are scared or newly married to go home, and 22,000 left. Okay? Uh, Those of you who have been in the military, just picture that. The drill sergeant comes out the first day. You get off the bus, and he says, okay, everybody who just got married or is scared, get back on the bus and go home. Okay? Our military would be much smaller. (laughs) But... Gideon uh, tells them to do and they take off. And he has 10,000 left. And God says, you still got too many. Take them down to the creek, down to the river, and let them get a drink and watch how they drink. And I've heard this message preached hundreds of times and preached it a few times. And in every situation, they did it essentially the same way. The guys who, who reached down and scooped up the water in their hands drink out of their hands, they got set apart on one side, and the guys who got down and put their face in the water and just lapped it up, they got set to the other side. 
And while we were there, a Jewish man said, what was the situation in Israel at the time? What was going on? Well, the Midianites were coming in every year and stealing all their stuff. All the harvest. When they had the wheat harvest, Midianites came in and stole it. When they had the, the uh, uh, olive harvest, the Midianites came in and stole the oil. When they had the grape harvest, the Midianites came in and stole the wine. And so they had all of this stuff going on. And every time there was a problem. Gideon is at the wine press threshing wheat. Why would you thresh wheat at the wine press instead of at the threshing floor? Well, because if you do it at the threshing floor, the Midianites going to know where to come and get your grain. So he's hiding out. But he takes these men down to the creek. And the deal in Israel during that day and time was that God had told Israel, do not worship the gods of the inhabitants of the land. You serve me and me only. Wow, that'd be a pretty good message for America today. Serve God and God only. And I will go ahead and tell you that most Americans only serve one God. It just does not happen to be the God of heaven. They're serving mammon, the God of money. They're taking it in quick as they can. Building it up. Building up a big retirement account so they can retire early. And they're planning to eat, drink, and be merry. And leave a vast fortune. Because we know for sure you can't take it with you. So they're going to leave it to somebody. And the government wants them to do that because the government wants them to leave it to them. That's why we have a death tax. We call it an estate tax, but it's a death tax. And uh, it's just the way our government works. We know you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And so we had men who were, uh, they had men in Israel who were, who would go to the tabernacle. And there they would make their offering three times a year. But when they got home at night, they would bow down before their little idol to Baal. And they would kneel down and worship Baal. And you say, Brother Casey, surely not. Oh, yeah. Their justification was they're just covering all the bases. You know? I mean, if you don't know for sure what to believe, you just cover all the bases. And that's what they were doing. And so God tells Gideon, take your men down to the stream and get a drink of water. All those that kneel down, that are used to kneeling down, send them home. I don't want men who don't know what they believe. I want men who are steadfast and stalwart and love God. And so those men who are not comfortable kneeling down will not kneel down. And I didn't understand that for a long time. But now I know if I kneel down... Somebody's going to have to get a crane to get me back up. I don't dare fall. Maybe on a double dog dare I might fall. But but I do know that when I fall, oh, it hurts bad. And when you're only allergic to two things, pain and gravity, you don't want to fall. 
because both of them attack you at the same time. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I, these guys, they all get down there, and a whole bunch of them kneel down, and they're lapping up water. And uh, there's some men who just reach down and scoop it up. Or they lay down on their bellies because they're not used to kneeling. And it turns out to be only 300. The Midianites, wow, were as numerous as a locust invasion, plague of mice, or a plague of rabbits like they have in Australia. And God gives Gideon 300 men. And his 300 men don't even have to have swords. They don't have to have weapons. It's not their battle. The battle belongs to God. And so uh, while the writer of Hebrews says, time would fail me to tell of Gideon, well, the truth is, the story of Gideon is, he split them up into three groups. And you can see from the hillside where the, where the uh, spring of Gidonia comes out and runs down through the countryside, you can see this huge open plain in front of it. And a great distance away is this hill on this side, and there's a hill over on this side, and a hill over on that side. And Gideon took his men, and they got behind these hills and came up over the top of the hills in the middle of the night, and they all shouted and smashed their pitchers and held their lamps up in the air and, and, and blew their trumpets and yelled, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon! And the Midianites, who were already a little nervous, jumped up and ran out of their tents, and in the dark somebody runs by you, you don't know if he's friend or foe, but if he's carrying a sword, you're not taking any chances. And they slaughtered each other. And God won the battle. There's not a real significant point in this particular message, but I'm going to say it anyhow because I want you to remember. God has never lost a battle. Okay? He has a very good track record. You say, what about in the Garden of Eden when Satan tempted Eve to sin and she sinned? God knew that was going to happen. Our salvation was already planned, and that was just the beginning of the war. Jesus won the war at Calvary. He won the war at Calvary. And when we come riding with God out of heaven on those horse on horseback, the end of the tribulation period, and Jesus, with the word of his mouth, destroys the ar- the armies of the in- of the enemies, the armies of the Antichrist. I mean, just the word of his mouth, boom, they're all dead. War's gonna be over. If you don't know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, you're on the losing side. Okay? But you don't have to be. Because Christ is taking volunteers for his army. And if you don't have to fight, why not go ahead and volunteer? You just have your sins forgiven, be born again into the family of God. Whoa. That's cool. Let's hurry on. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions? Who did that? Daniel. The, it's not mentioned here. His name is not mentioned here in the book of the Hebrews. But the story is he stopped the mouths of lions. 
quench the violence of fire. Who did that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They didn't stop the fire. They just quenched the violence. So what do you mean? I mean, they walked around in it like it was air conditioned. And what was so cool about that was while they were walking around in this fire and not being burned, Jesus came and walked with them, and they got to talk to Jesus. Man, oh, man, how cool is that? Not only did they get to talk with Jesus, this was before he was ever born in a manger, before he ever died on the cross. And he just came to assure them that he was going to do it and they were going to go to heaven because of their faith. Because that's how people go to heaven today. Faith in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And when you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior... Believing that he died for you and that God raised him from the dead. And your sins are paid for. Well, you don't have to be afraid of fire either. goes on. Escaped the edge of the sword. Who was that? Well, there's several. Elijah was one. Excuse me, Elisha was one. The uh, king of Syria was coming down trying to whoop up on the king of Israel. And, and Elisha kept telling, the, kept telling the king of Israel, uh, the king of Syria is sending his army down and they're going to be on such and such a road on this day. So when you go to this city, you don't want to take that road, you know, go around the back road. And, and he did it over and over again. And the king of Syria got mad and he called all his generals in and he called all his servants in. And he said, somebody is telling the king what I say in my own bedroom and that's just wrong. Somebody in here is a sneak thief. Just a dirty, rotten spy. Who is it? I'm going to kill you now. And one of the generals said, It's not anybody here. There's a prophet down in Israel, and he tells the king what you're going to do. And he said, Well, we'll take care of that. We'll send the army down, and we'll just kill the prophet. That'll take care of that problem, won't they? So the army goes down. They surround the city where Elisha is staying. And Elisha's servant gets up early in the morning. He goes out and he sees this army camped on the hills around the city. And he he recognizes those are Syrians. Oh, man. He goes running back in the house. Wakes up Elisha. Elisha, Elisha, wake up, wake up, wake up. We're going to die. We're all going to die. Oh, no. And Elisha said, what? He said, the whole army of Syria surrounded us. We're all going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And Elisha said, give me a minute. Lord, open this guy's eyes so he can see your protection. Thank you. Amen. I go outside and look again. And so... His servant goes outside and he looks again and the armies of the Syrians are still camped all the way around the city. But between them and the city walls is this whole army of angels. And one angel killed 180,000 soldiers in one night. Think what an army of angels could do. Wow! And so 
servant comes running back and he says, Elisha, Elisha, the army of the Syrians is still out there. And we're not going to die. We're not going to die. Woohoo! Elisha says, tell you what, go out, go into the camp of the army of the Syrians. And if you would, find the general. He's, you'll be able to tell, you'll have to ask people where his tent is. But when you get there, he's going to be the one walking around like this. So the servant went out and sure enough, all the Syrians were blind. They couldn't see. And so... Elisha's servant takes him by the hand, leads him into the city. And Elisha says, okay, let's take them to the king's house. And so they took him to the city of Samaria where the king was living, and they took him to the king. And the king said, oh, good, they're all blind. We can kill them all. And Elisha said, no, feed them. It was like Elisha already knew what Paul was going to write in the New Testament thousand years later. What did Paul write? If your enemy hunger, feed them. If they thirst, give them drink. And so they fed them. They gave, gave everybody some, something good to eat. And they gave them something good to drink. And then they sent them home. And they said, tell the king of Syria, please don't mess with us anymore. We don't want to have to hurt you. And they got back and the king of Syria said, Ooh. If they can, if they're so strong, they don't even have to worry about us attacking them. They just put out, set the food on the table and say, yeah, come on in. We're not scared of you. Maybe we ought to be scared of them. And so they, through faith, escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Where did that happen? Well, that name is mentioned, Samson. Strongest man that ever lived. You say, wait a minute. If Samson was the strongest man that ever lived, why do you say he was weak? Well, because nobody could figure out why he was so strong. My my son, Joshua, today, I saw him wearing a sleeveless shirt. His muscles. I mean, they're, they're huge. Okay? When I need something moved at the house, I call him. And nobody ever asks, do you think he'll be able to lift that piano? Oh, nobody asks that. We know he's going to be able to lift that piano. Look at those muscles. But you know what they said about Samson? Wow. How is he so strong? He's just an ordinary guy. How is he so strong? What makes him so strong? Well, truth is, it wasn't Samson. It was the Spirit of God that was so strong in Samson. And so his strength, he gained his strength through weakness. Waxed valiant in flight. In fight, excuse me. Waxed valiant in fight. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Elijah did that. This poor little old widow woman. No, actually, she wasn't a widow woman. She was a, just a, a wealthy woman who lived in, where did she live? The woman of, oh, man, my mind just went blank. Okay, I'll turn the page. 
She built a, a, a room on top of her house so that when Elijah came by, he could go up the ladder and, and have a cool place to sleep. And her servants would prepare food for him and all that. And one day Elijah said to her, what would you like? And she said, well, I'd really like to have a son. And Elijah said, okay, about this time next year, you and your, son, you and your husband will have a little baby. And the next year, sure enough, she has a baby. He's really surprised. <gasps> Elijah wasn't surprised. He asked God to give her a baby. He knew she was going to have a baby. But when this kid gets grown up a little bit, one day he's in the field with his dad, and it almost sounds like he got heat stroke, sunstroke, okay? And he grabbed his head, and he said, oh, my head hurts. And he went home to his mom, and she's trying to take care of him, and he died. And so she tells her servant, get on that donkey over there and you ride just as fast as you can and find Elijah. And she said, I'll be right behind you. And so they ride to find Elijah and they found him. And the servant said, I I mean, the woman said, Elijah, the son you gave me has died. Elijah said, show me where he is. They got there to the house and Elijah stretched himself out on top of this boy, breathed into his mouth. And prayed and asked God to give him life again. Kid sat up. Said, I'm hungry. Okay? Which indicates he was almost a teenager. That's when they get to be teenagers, they're always hungry. And this woman received her son raised to life again. And this is where we stop, but we're going to go on. And others, we're talking about by faith. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Poor old Jeremiah. All he did was tell the truth and tell the king what God told him to say. And the king got mad and put him in this cistern, had a mud floor in it, always damp, always wet, put him down in this pit and left him there. And he'd get cold at night. Nothing to wrap wrap up in. Not enough food to eat. And he just kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And, and, And all he did was tell the king, hey, don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt and trust Pharaoh to take care of you. God will not allow Pharaoh to take care of you. And the king says, I have other prophets. I've talked to them, and they say it's okay to go to Egypt, so let's go. And Pharaoh wasn't able to take care of him. Nebuchadnezzar went down and defeated Pharaoh's army southwest of Jerusalem. Things didn't turn out very well. Well, Poor old Jeremiah. He's the one that told the king, you will never see the city of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in, he's going to take the city of Jerusalem, and he's going to carry everybody off captive, and you'll never see the city of Jerusalem. And Ezekiel, who is a prophet in Babylon, in the Babylonian Empire, sends word back to the king, and he says, you're going to die of old age. God said that, Nebuchadnezzar is going to take the city of Jerusalem. He's going to bring you to, to Babylon, and you're going to die of old age here. And so the king told Jeremiah, Ezekiel says, I'm going to go to Babylon. 
You say I'm not ever going to see Babylon. So I'm going to take Ezekiel's word. And what happened to the king? Nebuchadnezzar comes in, captures the city, takes the king and all his kids, and they go down through the hills to Jericho. And when they get down by Jericho, they kill all the king's sons and throw them in a ditch. And then the king puts out, then Nebuchadnezzar puts out the king's eyes. He takes him to Babylon, but he never saw Babylon. Interesting. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. Manasseh, the son of King Hezekiah, stuffed Isaiah into a hollow log and cut the log in two with Isaiah in it. That's where it says they were sawn asunder. That's who they're talking about. Isaiah, the prophet, his old man, and Manasseh treated him like he was dirt. And by faith, Isaiah let him do it. Didn't cry out, didn't scream, didn't holler, didn't, no, no, none of that. Why? Because Isaiah knew when he drew his last breath here, he's going to take his next breath in Abraham's bosom. He's on his way to heaven. He wasn't worried. They were tempted, slain with the sword. Some of the kings would take the prophets and kill a sheep or a goat, turn the skins wrong side out, and sew it on them with their arms inside. Just sew the sheepskin around them, send them out into the wilderness, and the wild animals would find them, follow the smell of blood, and would attack them and chew them up and kill them. So it says they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And, all, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. What? What were they looking for? They looked for a holy city, a city not made with hands, eternal in the heavenlies. And they all died without seeing it. The ones that received great blessing and the ones who received cruel mockings and scourgings and death and torture. But they all had the same faith. We know the verse in Philippians chapter 4. We looked at it several months ago. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Everybody know that verse? Sure. Okay. What's it talking about? Huh? Oh, I can win great victories through Christ who strengthens me. I can, I can train and I can be an Olympic star. No, that's not what I was talking about. When Paul wrote that, he's in the maritime prison in Rome, down in this hole in the ground. He's been there for a while and going to be there for a while. And Paul says, hey, I can endure this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
So when we think something happens and we think, oh, no, how am I going to stand this? How am I going to, what am I going to do now? How could this happen to me? Well, you just jump on that verse and write it. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. I can live with cancer. I did for eight months. Until God chose to heal me. I can live with sarcoidosis. I did for eight years. God chose to heal me. I can do anything that God wants me to do. Through Christ who strengthens me. Because that's the hope of glory. You say what? Christ in you. The hope of glory. See, oh, I'm reminded of Randy Alcorn's illustration. Here's this line that stretches from infinity to infinity. And here's this little bitty dot right here. And this little dot on this line is my life. Why in the world do I get so concerned and so worried about this little dot when I've got that whole line to live with him? Let's not be so short-sighted. Let's look down the road. That's why I like long-term investing. You know, a million years out. 10,000 years out. You invest for that, and the return is 10,000% return on your investment. That's what Jesus said. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us. What? Yeah. They didn't receive the promise because God was waiting for us. He was waiting for this scrawny little Texas kid to be born. Looked like a little refugee. And his chunky little brother, who never looked like a refugee. Waiting for us to be born and for us to grow up and receive Christ as personal Savior. So that when the promise is given and the promise is delivered, we, along with all these people in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, will be made perfect with them. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Wow. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we close with that. This great cloud of witnesses. All these people who endured all of these things and enjoyed all of these things before us. Leaving us an example. So that we would understand that no matter what comes in our lives, by faith we can live for God. Knowing what the future holds. You say, oh, Brother Casey, you mean you know what the future holds? 
Yeah, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know what the future holds. Woo. Face to face with Christ my Savior. Face to face, what will it be? When with rapture I behold Him. Jesus Christ, who died for me. Wow. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank You so much for Your precious Word. Lord, thank You that You not only inspired it, but You preserved it for us. Those sweet and precious promises. As we read Your Word, our faith is increased. And as our faith is increased, we're able to see more and more clearly what You're doing in our lives, in this world, and what You have planned for the future. Dear Lord, I can hardly wait to see you. But until then, I want to be found faithful as a good steward. And Lord, I just ask that you would continue to use this church. Glorify yourself in it. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.